are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. The Long Kiss Goodnight, which came out in 1996. It was directed by Rennie Harlan. It stars Gina Davis, Samuel L. Jackson, Yvonne Zima, Craig Bierko, Tom Amandis, David Morse, Melina Kenikaratis, Patrick Malahide, and Brian Cox. The genre would be Christmas action thriller. Caitlin, come help me in the kitchen. Hurry up, because I forget where it is. That's her mom. She's got amnesia. What if you couldn't remember your real name and then suddenly, no! without warning, give me something else. Sour galleon. All your memories. Name's Charlie. I'm coming back. Came flooding back to you. Isn't Charlie? Long time. One bullet at a time. Who are you? Name's Charlie. The spy. This fall. Honk if there's any trouble. Yeah, so Miss Daisy, happy honking. If you have plans for a calm, quiet evening. Cover your ears. Hey, should we get a dog? It's time to kiss them all. Good night. Gina Davis, Samuel L. Jackson, The Long Kiss, Good Night. This is just a blast of a movie, which gets better every time I rewatch it. Having recently rewatched Deep Blue Sea, which is his shark thriller that came out a few years later, it is now dawning on me that director Rennie Harlan had a sneaky good run of genre films in the 90s with this, Deep Blue Sea, Die Hard 2, Cliffhanger, and hell, even The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, which I do consider a guilty pleasure at this point, even though it did star Andrew Dice Clay at the time. Rennie Harlan just often brings such a rapid-fire sense of tension and playfulness to set pieces, which helps sell them. Even if you might not completely buy what you're watching, you're not going to completely realize that until well after the movie's over. You're just kind of wrapped up in it. Just for a prime example, think back to Die Hard 2 with that improbable helicopter escape from John McClane, as we see an overhead shot of him evading about a dozen grenades that were thrown into the cockpit as he uses that ejector seat. And we literally see him fly into the camera. The whole thing really doesn't make a lick of sense when you really analyze it, but watching it real time, you just can't help be pulled in. I mean, Harlan just knows how to direct action and how to best utilize his actors for said action. Almost everything else is secondary. And what separates movies like this from overblown bay fests is not only staying out of his actors' way, but also keeping the length at two hours or less. And of course, also using a screenwriter like Shane Black, who by the time this film was released had already given us action classics like Lethal Weapon and The Last Boy Scout. Both previous episodes, by the way. Check them out. Of course, this would be the only collaboration between Shane Black and Rennie Harlan, which is a shame because we had gems of dialogue like this. What the hell is this? Uh, 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 don't give me attitude, sir. See, you're assuming I won't shoot your sorry ass. And everyone knows when you make an assumption, you make an ass out of you. And 
Yeah, it helps to know the tone you're setting off the bat, and to have peak Samuel L. Jackson delivering dialogue like that one. This film is just a genuine showcase for the outsized movie star talents of both Jackson and, of course, Gina Davis, who, yes, deserved to be in many more action vehicles like this one. I mean, is it any wonder, now decades later, as to how Thelma and Louise, previous episode Thelma and Louise, remained such a rewatchable gem, despite some genuinely darker content? It's because of just how much fun it is to watch Davis's Thelma really cut loose during that third act. In the right role, she was just one hell of a charismatic star. And you see it here, throughout the movie, and in an early scene, which on paper is just plain goofy. Watching her Samantha slash Charlie overcome some of her amnesia to realize how amazing she is with a knife. As we see a montage of her gleefully chopping up vegetables in her kitchen, with her boyfriend and daughter throwing different vegetables at her to chop. I used to do this. I'm a chef. Yahoo! Hey. Give me something else. Quick, anything. Uh, anything. Here. Go, man, go. Hot tomato. Oh yeah, there is a plot. It involves Davis's character realizing after eight years of amnesia, where she goes by Samantha, that she was actually an assassin slash spy for the CIA, or something along those lines. Well, she finds out that her real name is Charlie regardless. And she also finds out about a plot involving some rogue agents trying to set up a false flag terrorist attack now run by her sorta ex-boyfriend slash Mark. Point being that both Davis and Jackson's private detective named Mitch both get embroiled in said plot, meeting all sorts of undesirable characters who they inevitably need to kill at some point. Among them is Brian Cox, who is really fun to watch in a brief acid turn as a CIA handler, I think. Alice, please. Your dog, Alice. It and my appetite are mutually exclusive. Well, what's wrong with the dog? It's simple. He's been licking his asshole for the last three straight hours. I submit to you that there is nothing there worth more than an hour's attention. And I should think that whatever he is attempting to dislodge is either gone for good or there to stay. Wouldn't you agree? David Morris and Melina Kanekoridis also make the most with limited screen time. And then there's Craig Birko as the main villain, Timothy. But we'll get to him a bit later. It's still pretty great regardless with a nonstop parade of inventive bloody action and defiantly R-rated humor and with Black's signature violent Christmas fetish, no less. What else could you ask for for a fun watch during the holidays? And now begins the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. Throughout the soundtrack of this movie, there is canny use of both retro hits from the 70s mixed with Christmas standards. And then during the extended end credits, which seem to go on like 10 minutes, we hear a series of female-driven modern rock songs. Well, at least for 96. As we don't really hear these songs during the movie, nor do they really have much to do with the plot of the movie, I'm guessing they were placed there as a way to plug the musical acts performing those songs. This was actually a marketing practice that was pretty common in the 90s when you had the film's production company sometimes closely affiliated with a record company. And they want to cross-promote. And fortunately, during these credits, we are treated to a very special song from a very special performer whom I believe never quite received the recognition that was due to her back in the 90s, despite releasing some great albums. 
And that would be Sweden's own Nina Cherry, who first broke out on the world stage with a big dance hit in 1988, Buffalo Stance. Fantastic song. We always hang in a buffalo Well, in 96, Nina Cherry released her third album titled Man, which was a pretty sizable international hit, even though it seemingly took forever to get released stateside. I mean, I remember going to Tower Records, Virgin Records for weeks and weeks on end to find this album, and they would not release it. I don't know why. Great album, regardless. And one of the featured hit singles was the song Woman, just a gorgeous trip-hop ballad, which is kind of a meditative play on James Brown's It's a Man's 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 World. I love the song. And during this film's lengthy end credits, we do get to hear most of it. I mean, yeah, I know. This is barely a needle drop, but it's still a kick to hear this song. Oh, and check out the video on YouTube, Wild Stuff, with an early performance from a very young Andy Serkis. The next category would be Wasted Talent. Now, regarding Timothy, the villain. Kind of a funny name for a villain, isn't it? <laughs> well, regardless, I'm at a loss as to whether Craig Bierko is actually good in this role as he does cut a menacing figure, but he just isn't given much to do. He certainly has the crazy eyes thing down. I mean, those eyes even become a plot point. But there's a subplot introduced with his character, which goes nowhere. And I'm not sure why. It honestly feels like there was stuff left on the cutting room floor with Timothy, as he's kind of halfway between a henchman and a full-on master villain. It's never completely clear. Now, it honestly doesn't hurt the film that much, as there's just such a fun dynamic between Davis and Jackson that I was fine just hanging out with them more. But a truly great adversary for Charlie might have brought this movie to the elite level of action films from this era. As it is, he's just a serviceable adversary. But with crazy eyes, that helps. One-eyed Jack. Yeah, he's doing 7 to 10 upstate. Not anymore. He broke out. Two days after seeing something on TV that quote-unquote disturbed him. Yeah, I saw it too. It's called Baywatch Nights. You want to get to the fucking point? Well, under sedation, he said Charlie Baltimore's alive, sir. The next category would be the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. The climax of this movie takes place at Niagara Falls, mainly the suspension bridge which separates the United States from Canada. And this happens to be the target, well, at least part of the target, of the previously mentioned false flag terrorist attack. Now, if it is possible to have two money shots, barely 30 seconds apart, this sequence pulls that off. So here's the basic setup. Gina Davis's Charlie is on the bridge, unarmed and badly injured, and 50 feet above her is a flaming corpse holding a machine gun suspended up in the air via a rope of Christmas lights. I'm not making this up. And the only thing holding up that corpse is that the rope is tied to the bridge right near her. Also, just over yonder is Timothy in a helicopter with a machine gun, which is aimed right at her. And his helicopter just happens to be hovering over a giant gasoline truck rigged to explode in less than a minute. Hmm. So guess what happens? 
Yep, she uses her knife to cut the rope of Christmas lights. With the leverage of the flaming corpse pulling her up, she grabs the machine gun as they pass each other and... And as if that wasn't enough, then 30 seconds later, the truck explodes. Then the bridge explodes. Then the nearby toll booths explode. Flying into the air is not only shrapnel, but several cars which were on the bridge. And to top it all off, we watched Jackson's Mitch drive Charlie and her daughter just outside of the flames and just around the smashing cars around them. All of this is, of course, improbable and overblown, but it's still one of the great escape action set pieces of the 90s. Right up there with Richard Kimball's prison bus slash train derailment escape in The Fugitive. Pretty high praise. We are talking about a display of pyrotechnics, which is so beautifully shot and executed that this same explosion has now been reused for at least two smaller budget action films, which have come out since then. So this sequence has pretty much become top flight expensive stock footage. Pretty impressive. Which brings me to the final category, the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. I was at first genuinely torn about this one, as you have a prominent star, Gina Davis, at the height of her powers, a prominent screenwriter, Shane Black, at the height of his powers, and a big-time genre director all strutting their stuff here, resulting in a highly entertaining movie. Why don't you just go away and come back at midnight? Shoo. Hey, honey. This is a real big fucking gun. This ain't no ham on rap, pal. What the hell are you doing? Saving your life. I would have been here sooner, but I was thinking up that ham on rye line. You think I can't take him? Now you probably scared the other ones away. What up? Headhunters, Nimrod. They don't travel alone. You're always this stupid. Did you take lessons? I took lessons. Hey, what? what? I still got this fucking gun. Davis is fantastic, Black's screenplay is a load of fun, but at the end of the day, The Long Kiss Goodnight might be the best pure directing we have ever seen from Rennie Harlan. Because this film just moves, it pays good attention to character, and it just features so many crazy sequences which should not work for the sheer absurdity of them. And yet Harlan with his directing chops pulls them off with style and confidence. The best example would likely be an early sequence where Davis's Samantha Kane which is her previous fake identity. She's just driving home a drunken guest from her holiday party. And he, the guest, of course, is acting ridiculous, distracting her, when she suddenly plows into a deer on a windy road in the middle of a snowy forest. To fully describe the sequence does not do it justice, but let's just say that the sequence culminates with the action heroine in Samantha slash Charlie suddenly awakening as she stands up in the snow after being flung 20 feet forward from her crashed car a third of her face now covered with blood, half of her hair replete with Christmas lights, and with a flaming car behind her, she calmly creeps over to this now fatally injured deer on the ground, grasps the ends of its antlers, and then abruptly breaks its neck out of mercy. <laughs> I don't think I have seen a scene like this before or since. And pulling it off, along with at least a dozen other memorable scenes alongside it, Rennie Harlan is your MVP. My rating for The Long Kiss Goodnight would be four and a half stars out of five. In the pantheon of holiday action movies, the original Die Hard and the original Lethal Weapon, those two films remain the elite. But if we're talking top tier just behind them, The Long Kiss Goodnight has earned its spot at the table for Christmas dinner. So dig in.
And if you're looking to watch The Long Kiss Goodnight, it is currently streaming on Showtime. And that ends another incandescent review. Special shout out to my lovely wife, Marlene Gershon, for producing this podcast, and to my lovely daughter, Ella Gershon, for assisting in the editing. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.